electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Russia's health ministry claims to have approved the world's first COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on whether it could possibly be safe. I wouldn't take it, certainly not outside a clinical trial right now. It, it appears that, that it's only been tested in several hundred patients at most. New York's biggest employers plan to hire more workers from underserved communities. Two of the women leading the charge, IBM's Ginny Rometty. What this is, in my mind, really all about, very clearly, is economic opportunity. It is the only way to solve things like racial justice or equality. And the New York Jobs CEO Council leader, Gail Mello. Finding the people is not hard. There are almost 200,000 people who go to the City University of New York. What has been missing is this link between the business and the educational system. Those stories plus college game day? Maybe not. If you're able to come back to school, should you also then play sports? College students, they aren't just going to sit in their apartments and not see anybody. It's Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Wilfred Frost and Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are off today, but guys, it's great to have both of you here. Huge news that we are kind of wrangling with on this Tuesday morning. News breaking overnight. Russian President Vladimir Putin said that the first Russian-produced vaccine for COVID-19 has received regulatory approval from the country's health ministry. The vaccine was developed by Moscow's uh, Gamalea Institute, Putin said it forms stable immunity and passes all necessary safety checks. Putin also said one of his daughters has actually received that vaccine. Brian, this news about Putin and this potential vaccine is huge, but I think we do need to take it with a grain of salt. Well, trying to make sense of it, Becky. Good morning, Wolf and Becky, as well. I mean, yeah. trying to make sense of it, you have what you think are the market's sort of key points, right? Trillions of dollars in stimulus, potential for payroll tax cuts, all the market themes that we've all been talking about on CNBC all day long powering the markets higher seven days in a row, you wake up at whatever, four o'clock in the morning and Russia says, oh, by the way, we have a working vaccine. It's been approved by our own institute and I gave it to my daughter, says Vladimir Putin. So it is a huge developing story. And I think, guys, it really, whether or not you believe it or not, and there's going to be a lot of scientists that want to see the data. What is this vaccine? What is it based on? How many doses are available? How much does it cost? Does the world get it? Either way, the market did move a little. We were up before the headlines crossed, but it did move a little on this news. And I think, Becky, it does call into question what happens on the day, and whether that day is today or not, the day the world gets a working vaccine, what happens? What do we do? Do we, you know, I, I think, I guess... Drink some vodka? Do we go out and, I mean, do we streak down the street? I have no idea. You know, I might. Look, here, here, 
here's what I here's how I kind of look at this news. Just from what we've been hearing in the last several months from experts, there is a huge debate here in the United States taking place about whether these potential vaccine candidates should be fast tracked even more and brought directly to the public before it goes through the extensive phase one, phase two, phase three testing, the phase three testing that you would normally see. It's a very high bar. Uh, they want to make sure that that not only is it safe for people to take, but also that there is efficacy. Remember last week we heard from Dan, Dr. Anthony Fauci that there's a, a real risk that you are not going to see something that has 90 percent or north in terms of its effectiveness. They, 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 mm -hmm. The FDA is now looking at 50 percent as the floor. If they can get 50 percent effectiveness, they would think that that is great. 60, 75 percent, even better. But you're probably not talking about a vaccine where you have 93 percent effectiveness like you do with the measles shot. My guess is that the Russians have taken a candidate and, and fast forward it without doing mm -hmm. a lot of those types of extensive studies that you're going to see on candidates, vaccine candidates here in the United States. Now, there's a big debate about that. There are people here in the United States who are pushing for us to do the very same thing. But if you talk to uh, some of the more cautious experts, some of the people who look at this, they say, no, we, we do this for a reason. It would be disastrous if you approved a vaccine and then it turned out it either wasn't safe or that it didn't work very well, that, that people would lose faith in vaccination programs. It's difficult enough to get people to accept vaccinations and do this. And there are more people here in the United States who are anti-vaxxers at this point, who are raising questions about whether they'd even take it. But there is a real reason that you go through these extensive steps and try to make these things positive. Now, again, totally a guess, but I don't know how they would have had time to do all the testing that, that we are making sure every one of the vaccination candidates here in the United States has gone through. And, and that's just the safety question, yeah, Becky. I mean, look at the data we've got so far from all of the U.S. and European trials. Uh, if you could put safety aside, has any of them showed yet enough effectiveness in, in treating this virus, enough antibodies or antigens or whatever it is they're trying to create? And I'm not sure we're even quite there yet anyway on some of the U.S. data points. And to that point, whether it's a, a safety concern or uh, effectiveness concern with the Russian vaccine, I doubt we'll get the data. You know what's weird? Yeah. You know, you put out the news on, of course, Twitter is, you know, whatever you want to call it. And there's a group of people that just don't want to believe anything. They don't want any good news. It's yeah. like people that just want bad. I don't know why that is. It's like, oh, well, it's not real or it's Russia it must be fake. Maybe it is fake. Who knows? <laughs> There's a lot of candidates out there, not just on the vaccine side, but on the antibody side, the treatment side. Regeneron and others, yes. he thinks we could have real yeah. candidates by September. By the way, September is next month. Let me give you a few reasons to be optimistic. The R1, the reproduction rate, has held fairly steady. There are community spreads in parts of America, but overall fairly steady. The question I've got is this. We're starting to get some indications that Americans may be closer to so-called herd immunity than we think because T-cell reproduction rates have seemed higher in some communities. Ironically, Corona Queens, a few weeks ago or a month ago, they found that 25% <laughs> of the population had developed T-cells or antibodies, and 25% and was not ill, indicating that perhaps there is a greater capacity for our amazing bodies to generate these T-cells and these antibodies than we think. In other words, guys, there's a lot of terrible news out there and a lot of families are suffering, but the markets, I think, have looked at the fact that we had 1968, 60 million people got avian flu, the Hong Kong flu in 1968, 150,000 or so Americans ended up dying from that, about 200,000 in today's numbers. No vaccine was ever created for that. You can debate whether or not we have a vaccine. It still exists in some form. The point is, I think the market has at least looked out a year and said life will hopefully be much different and maybe much more normal than it is right now.
Joining us right now on the phone to talk more about this is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's former FDA commissioner and now a CNBC contributor. He's also on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. And Dr. Gottlieb, what do you think of this news? We've been trying to figure out uh, what it means and uh, potentially where we go from here. Well, uh, I wouldn't take it, uh, certainly not outside a clinical trial right now. It, it appears that, that it's only been tested in several hundred patients at most. There's some reports that it's been in as few as 100 patients. It's a uh, adenoviral vector vaccine, so it's based on a viral vector that's being used to deliver the gene sequence that codes for the epitope, in this case the spike protein, that you want to elicit immunity against. Um, so it's not a, not a trivial vaccine in terms of the uh, technical um, complexity that goes into manufacturing a vaccine like this. If you remember, the Chinese were also developing an adenoviral vector vaccine by a company called CanSino that's in clinical trials in Canada. And the early data on that vaccine isn't very encouraging. A lot of people uh, had antibodies to the viral vector itself, and so they, they effectively neutralized the viral vector because it was based on a common cold, the virus that was being used to deliver the gene sequence in this case. And it's not clear what, uh, how efficacious the Russian vaccine is going to be and whether or not people have some prior immunity to the adenovirus that they're using to deliver the coronavirus gene sequence. When you say you wouldn't take it, is that because you worry about its safety or its efficacy? Well, both at this point. Something that's only been tested in, in several hundred patients, that's effectively a phase one clinical trial. And so you wouldn't want to take that outside a clinical trial where you're being closely monitored. Um, in a lot of these situations, you might only get one shot at taking a vaccine within a season. So if you put a vaccine on the market that's not efficacious, it's going to be hard to revaccinate the population. So you want to make sure it works. Um, and you also want to make sure it's safe. This isn't a trivial uh, technological platform that they're using to uh, manufacture this vaccine. It's not a protein-based vaccine where they're just injecting some segment of the spike protein. They're using a viral vector to deliver that epitope. And so that's, that's technically complex. And so there's more things that can go wrong from a safety standpoint, including that you can get a reaction to the viral vector itself. Dr. Gottlieb, it's Brian Sullivan. They, they started the trials on this drug actually back in mid-June, and by mid-July they said they hope to have a working vaccine by mid-August, which is basically where we are. So they have been working on this and testing it on humans for two months. Is that enough time to come to any conclusion? I think in terms of their development right now, they're, they're a little bit behind where we are with the vaccines that we have in development. Our vaccines here in the U.S. are in phase three clinical trials. They're getting dosed in thousands of patients um, as we speak. Uh, they've cleared phase one, phase two studies. They've been tested in 100 and in some cases a couple of hundred patients. That's about where Russia is right now. They've cleared the equivalent really of a phase one clinical trial in terms of putting it in 100 to maybe as many as 300 patients. So it needs to be evaluated in a large-scale clinical trial. Now, what it means for them to give um, some kind of preliminary approval to start vaccinating people outside of a clinical trial is unclear to me. They might be trying to do this in some kind of registry. They talked about getting volunteers to, uh, to take the vaccine outside of a clinical trial. So that might be some kind of registry that they're setting up where they're going to continue to follow these patients. It's not really cleared for general use in the market. So there might be a little bit of semantics going on in terms of how they're treating this from a regulatory standpoint. So they're claiming that it's fully approved, but it's not really fully approved. But they're certainly not ahead of us, and we certainly wouldn't uh, allow a vaccine to be used for mass distribution at this point based on the data that we have in hand. We just don't know that the vaccines are safe and effective at this point.
Dr. Gottlieb, uh, if safety was no longer a question for the vaccines that are in trial uh, in the U.S. and, and, and in Europe, uh, would they be worth taking yet based on the data that we have on how effective they are? Would they be game-changing in terms of delivering uh, widespread immunity across a, a whole nation based on that part of the data that we do have so far, U.S. and U.K. UK, UK vaccine trials? Well, the vaccines that we have in development here look, look encouraging. The challenge is that if you, even if you believe that they were safe based on the data that we have in hand, and I don't think you can draw that, that conclusion just based on, you know, a couple of hundred patients. You really need to put these in large-scale trials where you're testing them on patients, uh, a, a broader sort of more diverse population, people who are more likely to experience side effects of a vaccine, people who are older, people who might have other health conditions. Um, so, you know, you don't have all the safety data that you, you would want to have in hand. But then the other question is, if you allow mass distribution of a vaccine, and it turns out that vaccine isn't effective, have you actually done um, something that's productive? Because you're not going to be able to then go back and revaccinate people right after that with a second vaccine, or you might not be able to. So you might get only one shot at this over the course of a season. There's also theoretical risks associated with the vaccine that can't be fully elucidated in a small-scale clinical trial. One of them is that there's some concern, a theoretical concern, that the vaccines themselves can actually potentiate um, your propensity to get coronavirus in certain situations. Now, we, it, we believe that that's not going to be the case based on the data we have in hand, but you don't fully discharge that potential risk until you get into a large-scale clinical trial. We have seen this phenomenon before, particularly with the dengue fever vaccine. So it's something that you need larger trials to fully discharge that kind of a risk. Hey, doctor, that, that's my concern with it, it, is there are already so many people who are who don't trust vaccines at this point. If, if you had something that was out there and that that either didn't work or wasn't safe, that it, it, it would be a huge disservice. It would make more people think that you couldn't have this. And I, I don't think it would just be a one season situation where you'd be facing trouble with vaccines. I think you could be looking at, at decades or longer where people wouldn't trust vaccines, including vaccines that we know work well. So is Russia actually being a bad actor here by introducing something before it goes through these testing phases? I think that's right, uh, Becky. We have a lot of challenges in this country with vaccine hesitancy and people not getting vaccinated with the flu vaccine, which we have a lot of data about, about its safety and effectiveness. Only about 40% of Americans go out and get the flu vaccine each year. In some years, it's slower than that. So if we were to license a vaccine or make a vaccine available for coronavirus for mass distribution that wasn't effective or had some side effect associated with it, I think it would be it would impinge more than just people's willingness to take the coronavirus vaccine. People need to have confidence in the regulatory process that's making these products available. Um, it's really not clear. The headline um, is, is uh, not very clear with respect to what the Russians mm -hmm. are actually doing. They talked about making it available for volunteers. That doesn't sound like it's, it's being fully licensed for mass distribution in Russia on the basis of maybe as few as 100 patients in a clinical trial. Doctor, outside of that, there was a comment. I want to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, there was a common belief that we needed to have, you know, 65 to 70 percent of the country develop some kind of uh, either the illness or enough exposure and viral load to it to create this idea of herd immunity. With the T-cell counts that we have seen in some people uh, that have not shown any symptoms, do you believe that we could reach this, this concept of herd immunity with a far smaller percentage of the population actually being asymptomatic, maybe 25 or even 30 percent. In other words, could we be closer than maybe the headlines lead us to believe? 
Well, we could be closer, but it's probably not because of this theory that there is a vast army of people out there who have T-cell immunity from prior exposure to other coronaviruses that creates cross-immunity to this particular coronavirus. That might be the case for some people. There might be some cross-immunity from prior exposure to similar coronaviruses and antibody immunity as well. But it's really unclear whether or not this so-called T-cell immunity actually has cross-reactivity and affords some level of protection. Now, that said, you don't, you're probably not going to need to have 60% of the population exposed to this coronavirus or vaccinated in order to have effectively the equivalent of herd immunity because the reality is that not everyone's equally susceptible. Some people, as you suggest, do have cross-immunity. Some people just aren't vulnerable to the virus because of behavior, because they don't go out, because they don't work in settings where they put themselves at risk. Not everyone's equally vulnerable. And so what ends up happening with an epidemic like this is the people who get infected first are the people who are most vulnerable, most likely to get infected. Once they develop some immunity, infecting that next person, that incremental person, becomes much more difficult for the virus because that person either has some innate immunity or is harder to find for the virus. So the rate of transfer starts to fall. That's probably what's happening in the South as well. When you look at states like Florida, where maybe upwards of 20% of people have already been infected, um, Texas, probably about 15%, Arizona, maybe as high as 25%. The rate of transmission is probably starting mm. to decline in part because there's been a lot of people already infected. And now for the virus to infect that next person is more difficult. Hey, Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate having you with us every day, um, but especially today because there are some big questions about this breaking news. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Next on Squawk Pod, creating access to work, hopefully stable work, with the launch of the New York Jobs CEO Council. IBM's executive chairman and former CEO, Ginny Rometty, and former president of LaGuardia Community College, Gail Mello. The people who have been underserved in New York, the pockets where the benefit of these thriving companies has not been fully felt, and including them in the companies so that in 20 years, maybe, one of these students will take Ginny's place. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. All right, good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box or welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC and what has become a very busy Tuesday all of a sudden. By the way, I'm, I'm not Joe, I'm Brian Sullivan. That's not Andrew, that's Wilfred Frost along with, of course, <laughs> Becky Quick. Joe and Andrew have the morning off somewhere they are together tanning. Uh, well, could eight <laughs> what an be enough? Well, <laughs> yes, it is. And I just ruined my day. My eyes. Uh, could eight be enough? <laughs> Seriously, I hadn't actually thought about it. Now I am. Well, you're welcome, Wolf. A coalition of the 27 largest employers in the New York area, big publicly traded companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Verizon, Mount Sinai, Goldman Sachs, have joined together in a push to get jobs to more and more diverse New Yorkers. 
Launching today as a nonprofit, the New York Job CEO Council is a group of leaders from those companies. They promise to hire more than 100,000 primarily low-income, diverse New Yorkers by 2030. Among other local groups, this council plans to work with the City University of New York to hire 25,000 CUNY students in the next decade. A plan like this has been in the works for a while, but the COVID-19 pandemic underscores the need for stable jobs and the opportunity for career advancement in underserved communities. New York's unemployment rate is above 20 percent, the highest in the 44 years that the data has been collected. The city's small business sector has lost half a million jobs. Becky Quick spoke with two of the leaders behind the New York Job CEO Council, IBM Executive Chairman Ginny Rometty and the Council's Executive Director Gail Mello. Here's Becky. Ladies, welcome to both of you. It's good to see you this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Gail, this is a, a pretty ambitious take. There, it looks like 100,000 jobs you're looking to create over the next 10 years. How, how did this come about and where this was, what, what, were, what were the origins of uh, the idea? The origins of the idea were, um, were, were sort of moving around for quite a while, almost a year ago, when I think companies began to really realize that the, the issues of getting the right talent into their companies and making sure that that was a diverse talent has really come to the forefront. And as they came together, I think there was um, there are some leading companies, probably 12 or 13, who sort of stepped out first, um, IBM being one of them. But, but really it was the understanding that particularly in New York City, that coming together as a, as a partnership would be able to scale something that really had an impact in a long-term way on New York City and on the viability and strength of the companies that are part of the coalition. Hey, Jenny, IBM has been in New York for over 100 years. It's been based in New York. How do you come at this, and and what's your hope? Well, Becky, as you know, this is a topic that we have focused on a long time. I think I've been on the show many times, and this has all been about making this digital era an inclusive era, and that there's large underserved parts of the community that are not part of this economic equation. And so what this is in my mind really all about very clearly is economic opportunity. It is the only way to solve things like racial justice or equality. And so this is in my mind one way that the private sector can come together. And at this scale, it really begins to be a movement for economic opportunity. And our background, as you know, on this is started with many efforts like P-TECH, which involves, by the way, CUNY and other, other companies on this list, which has been a way to have six-year high schools that now have 150,000 students coming through them. And so that'll contribute to this effort, which is 100,000 employees over 10 years across the five boroughs of New York City. Hey, Jenny, I know at IBM, you, you focused on this for a long time. You called them new-collar jobs. What, what is that exactly? And can you give a couple of examples of, of where you would put someone, where you would place them within the organization? Yes, because I think this will be true across all these companies. We'd come up with the name new-collar because we wanted to come up with a positive way to describe a new pathway into all of our companies that did not necessarily require a four-year degree to get started. And in fact, that is how we can bring and begin to bring many of these people into our companies. And so as an example, cyber specialists, software engineers, you can take a look at cloud specialists. I met a young lady uh, just this week, Emmy Banks. Here's an example. She was in the Army for a good number of years, 17, 18 years, teaching third and fourth grade. Now she is a cyber specialist. 
or you're a young person coming out of a six-year high school with a community college, and you are now becoming, we've had baristas, nurses, you name it, are becoming any one of those tech professions. And Becky, this applies to all the companies, and it isn't just tech jobs. I think Gail can talk about, we're gonna focus on healthcare. There's absolutely a healthcare need in this city, there's a technology need in this city, and there's a business services need in New York City. Hey, Gail, how do you find the people who can be placed in these jobs? What have you learned so far, and how do you ramp that up? Well, the amazing thing, I think, is the partnership, that it is both the businesses and the public education system in New York City, both the City University of New York and the New York Department of Education, that are coming together to educate and to frame, to make sure that the 21st century skills are a normal part of a student's interaction with um, all of their educational experiences. Finding the people is not hard. There are almost 200,000 people who go to the City University of New York. What has been missing is this link, this link between the business and the educational system. And what we hope to do is really make that system less dysfunctional, less fragmented, and really smooth a path, not just so that people whose parents were professionals, but for some of the kids that I have seen when I was president at LaGuardia Community College, individuals who had never been in an office building, students who had never actually been in Manhattan and they lived in Queens or the Bronx, part of it is reaching out and making sure that there's a smooth pathway and that we're effective in connecting over a scale. And I think what's most impressive to me is that this is not a one-year um, focus. This is a 10-year focus. These companies have come together for the long term. And I think the partnership and the scale and the long term uh, prospects are really pretty extraordinary in reaching the individuals that Jenny was just talking about, the people who have been underserved in New York, the pockets where the the benefit of these thriving companies has not been fully felt and including them in the companies so that in 20 years, maybe, one of these students will take Ginny's place. Hey, Gail, how, how much more difficult in the short term is this to do, bringing kids into offices, doing all these things in an era of coronavirus where there's nobody in the offices? Well, that's true. But, but the offices are virtual. It's not as if business has stopped, as you know, Becky. So the process is really making sure that we're talking to each other, that there really is a partnership, which I have already begun to feel with extraordinary support from the companies and from the City University of New York with their new chancellor, Fela Matos Rodriguez, and finding the actions that really make a difference. We're going to be an action-focused organization. We are not interested in theory, and we're not interested in making something perfect 30 years from now. We want to try things now, and so we will, um, like, like, like any startup, we're going to go for the minimal viable product to start, see what works. If it works, great, build on it. And if it doesn't, let it go. Each one of these companies already does mm -hmm. a lot of work in really training apprenticeships and bringing them on. But what we really want to do is bring on yeah. a whole different generation. You know, Becky, if I can just add, oh. 
I think one way to look at this is you're connecting supply and demand and you're getting the supply, building the right set of skills. So it's a public private partnership with like CUNY and then connecting it to the demand side. But a really important piece on the demand side is getting all of our companies to change the way they do hiring to allow these people to come in without four year degrees to get started. And this to me is one of the most important things that has to happen on the demand side. Now we've been at it eight years, 15% of our hiring last year in the United States was these types of people. And it was 15% of a big number. And even now you mentioned during this pandemic, we just added another thousand internships for kids coming out of P-TECH as an example. So there is openings in these skills in every one of these companies. And it's a matter of then getting this skill not to be a mismatch with this population, but to be a match. So I believe this is an unprecedented collaboration for New York City at a time it needs it the most. Because there was a mismatch even before the pandemic. New York had half a million open jobs, or over a million open jobs, but 400,000 unemployed. So this is about getting that match between openings and skills. Jenny and Gail, I want to thank you both for your time today. It's good to see you, and we hope to get updates on how this is coming along, this initiative. Great. Thank you. Please come back to us. Thank you. More Squawk Pod after this. Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence arguing on Twitter that the players are just as likely to contract COVID if they are sent home to communities where families will be responsible for their medical care and expenses as well. If you can get this sport on, millions and millions of people want to see it, and and that should be also considered, I think. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You're listening to Squawk Pod, today with Becky Quick, Wilfred Frost, and Brian Sullivan, who have different opinions on sports in the time of coronavirus. Here's Brian. College football's fall season is in jeopardy. The Mid-America Conference, the MAC, threw in the towel on Saturday, and now the Mountain West Conference has become the second to postpone until at least next spring. They want to play in the spring, and then I guess again in the fall. Now, the big call is going to be from what they call the Power Five Conferences. That is the Big Ten Pac-12, the ACC, etc. And that decision is expected as soon as today. It all comes amid a push by some student athletes to keep the season intact. Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence arguing on Twitter that the players are just as likely to contract COVID if they are sent home to communities where families will be responsible for their medical care and expenses as well. President Trump retweeted the Clemson quarterback 
and said the student athletes have been working too hard for their season to be canceled. Hashtag we want to play. The one thing I would say about this is you talk about economic debates, Becky and Wilf. And, and Becky, I know you went to Rutgers. I went to Virginia Tech. I can tell you this much. Big football school, you want to have safety first, but let's not. And I'm not saying they should play. I'm not making the argument one way or the other. But I can tell you this much. The financial status of some of these big schools is going to be blown to smithereens without football. Not saying we should have it. It's not the reason to do it if it's unsafe. But it changes well, the economic game. I, I think it's a multi-billion is, dollar is, industry. Yeah, but the liability. I mean, that has to be what they, they are making these decisions based on. If somebody gets sick, if somebody takes it home to a parent or a grandparent and, and they either wind up on a ventilator or die, I think the liability is probably why the schools are making these decisions. The quarterback's probably right. The idea that, that these kids are just as likely to, to come down with it out in the other community, it's a question of who's going to be responsible for it and who's liable for what has happened in these situations. Um, mm -hmm. And by the way, Brian, aren't they just postponing it to the spring at this point? Well, those other conferences were. That's what they were suggesting. Let's go ahead and play in the spring, which I find a little bit odd, given that flu season is November to February or March, right? So that would be, that would seem to be yeah. less likely. But you are right, and you know this is litigation nation, and everything does come down to that liability issue. Although I'd just say you could have all the players if they really want to play, sign waivers, uh, for example. And and it, obviously, as as you said at the top, Brian, it all comes back to safety and, and strangely looking at some of the sports as they've uh, played out the professional sports haven't been that safe which which would be the deal breaker either way but i do think there's another factor that we should all be considering given that we're not in the peaks of march and april uh, again looking at, at how sports have managed to be put on uh, elsewhere around the world and that's the utility that a lot of people millions and millions of people get from watching it and that should be considered uh, i don't think we you know at the peaks where it's a case of there's no pp and e there's no testing uh, capacity that that means we have to totally prioritize all efforts to go to, to those people suffering. And I think you can weigh things up to say, well, look, if you can get this sport on, millions and millions of people want to see it. And, and that should be also considered, I think, in, in these decision-making processes. But safety first. And, Did you and some just of the say that we should not give the PPE and the test to the people who need it the most because we want sports back? No, I did not. I said we're not in a point where the people where we've run out <laughs> to, to an extent that that's not considered. I think if you look at all, I think... If you were short on those things, then that would apply. But clearly, there, there is the ability to... Uh, we're kind of short on tests. I mean, we have millions and millions and millions of tests. And I, I think it's reasonable that... And we have a lot of places where you can't get it and where you're waiting seven days to get them back. Right, Look, but that's I, I not because people are suffering from the disease. But how far down do you take that? No, it, 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 well, if you've got areas where they're able to get tests back in a day or two, that should be the case. If you can get that anywhere in the nation, then I think you can have the conversation about how we have plenty of tests. If you wait seven days, it's completely ineffective because very few people will actually sit around in quarantine and do what they're supposed okay, to do fine. and stay home uh, as mean, they wait for that test to I come mean, back. That, this is not really the argument I was making, but therefore, so, so you, at the moment, therefore, you think there should not be a single bit of sport being played anywhere across the whole world? No, that's not what I said. You but just said that we should make saying. sure that the college sports goes on because we, we have plenty of PPE and plenty of testing. Look, I'd like to see more testing around the schools so, so we get the schools I. back in I'm rather saying, than but, have college but, football. But, I'm thrilled to have major league sports coming back on. I think that's great. I They've got the money and the, the ability help. to put that there. What, what I'm but saying, hold. Becky, which is totally fair and accurate, is there is a different hierarchy of things that can be prioritized. Schooling clearly is one that should be top of the list because it brings huge value to the children and to the parents, both economically, morally, socially. 
similarly, sports... And let the kids back in school first. Sports, well, of course. Sports, on top of that, uh, initially, you know, will bring many more than just the people playing. We're not doing it for their wages. We're not doing it for the TV room. We're doing it for <sighs> the millions of people that will enjoy watching it. There is a hierarchy of things that you can prioritise to bring back. And that, that, that otherwise, well, otherwise okay. cancel so anything at the moment. A couple quick... Other, I know we got to go. A couple quick things... The waivers won't work, Wilf. I would just say this because this is the United States and, and you know, the, anybody could say, well, I signed it under duress. The whole team signed it. I didn't want to sign it, but I felt like I had to. And that would sort of rip up that contract, if you will. If you're able to come back to school, should you also then play sports? Because I can tell you this much, college students, they aren't just going to sit in their apartments and not see anybody. I'm just, just going to make a right. wild assumption that whether or not you're on the, the football field or in a classroom, or in a bar, or a fraternity house, whatever it is, you're going to socialize and not limit. I'm just making a wild guess about the behavior of college students. Right. People will continue to make no, choices either right. way. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Brian and Wilf. Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin will be back tomorrow. You can tune into Squawk Box weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.